Chapter Eleven of Peter Pan by J. M. Barry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven, Wendy's Story. Listen, then," said Wendy, settling down to her story, with Michael at her feet and seven boys in the bed. There was once a gentleman. I had rather he had been a lady," Curly said. I wish he'd been a white rat," said Nibs. Quiet," their mother admonished them. There was a lady also, and, oh, mummy," cried the first twin. "You mean that there is a lady also, don't you? She is not dead, is she?" "Oh no." "Ah, oh, I'm awfully glad she isn't dead," said Tootles. "Are you glad, John?" "Of course I am." "Aren't you glad, Nibs?" "Rather." "Are you glad, twins?" "We are glad." Oh dear," sighed Wendy. "Little less noise there," Peter called out, determined that she should have fair play, however beastly a story it might be in his opinion. The gentleman's name, Wendy continued, was Mister Darling, and her name was Missus Darling. "I knew them," John said to annoy the others. "I think I knew them," said Michael rather doubtfully. They were married, you know," explained Wendy. "And what do you think they had? White rats!" cried Nibs, inspired. "No." "It's awfully puzzling," said Tootles, who knew the story by heart. "Quiet, Tootles. They had three descendants. What is descendants? Well, you are one twin. Did you hear that, John? I am a descendant." Descendants are only children," said John. "Oh dear, oh dear," sighed Wendy. Now these three children had a faithful nurse called Nana, but Mister Darling was angry with her and chained her up in the yard, and so all the children flew away. "It's an awfully good story," said Nibs. They flew away," Wendy continued, "to the Neverland, where the lost children are." I just thought they did," Curly broke in excitedly. "I don't know how it is, but I just thought they did." "Oh, Wendy!" cried Tootles. "Was one of the lost children called Tootles?" "Yes, he was." "I am in a story! Hurrah! I am in a story, Nibs." "Hush! Now I want you to consider the feelings of the unhappy parents with all their children flown away." "Oh!" they all moaned. Though they were not really considering the feelings of the unhappy parents one jot, think of the empty beds. Oh, it's awfully sad," the first twin said cheerfully. "I don't see how it can have a happy ending," said the second twin. "Do you, Nibs?" "I'm frightfully anxious." If you knew how great is a mother's love," Wendy told them triumphantly. You would have no fear. She had now come to the part that Peter hated. I do like a mother's love," said Tootles, hitting Nibs with a pillow. "Do you like a mother's love, Nibs?" "I do just," said Nibs, hitting back. "You see," Wendy said complacently, "our heroine knew that the mother would always leave the window open for her children to fly back by, so they stayed away for years and had a lovely time." Did they ever go back? 
"'Let us now,' said Wendy, bracing herself up for her finest effort, "'take a peep into the future.' And they all gave themselves the twist that makes peeps into the future easier. Years have rolled by, and who is this elegant lady of uncertain age alighting at London Station? "'Oh, Wendy, who is she?' cried Nibs, every bit as excited as if he didn't know. Can it be? Yes. No. It is. The fair Wendy. Oh! And who are the two noble portly figures accompanying her, now grown to man's estate? Can they be John and Michael? They are. Oh! See, dear brothers, said Wendy, pointing upwards, there is the window still standing open. Ah, now we are rewarded for our sublime faith in a mother's love. So up they flew to their mummy and daddy, and Pen cannot describe the happy scene over which we draw a veil. That was the story, and they were as pleased with it as the fair narrator herself. Everything just as it should be, you see. Off we skip, like the most heartless things in the world, which is what children are, but so attractive, and we have an entirely selfish time, and then, when we have need of special attention, we nobly return for it, confident that we shall be rewarded instead of smacked. So great indeed was their faith in a mother's love that they felt they could afford to be callous for a bit longer. But there was one there who knew better and when Wendy finished he uttered a hollow groan. "'Oh!' "'What is it, Peter?' she cried, running to him, thinking he was ill. She felt him solicitously lower down than his chest. "'Where is it, Peter?' "'It isn't that kind of pain,' Peter replied darkly. "'Then what kind is it?' "'Wendy, you are wrong about mothers.' They all gathered round him in a fright. So alarming was his agitation, and with a fine candor he told them what he had hitherto concealed. "'Long ago,' he said, "'I thought like you that my mother would always keep the window open for me, so I stayed away for moons and moons and moons, and then flew back. But the window was barred, for mother had forgotten all about me, and there was another little boy sleeping in my bed. I am not sure that this was true, but Peter thought it was true, and it scared them. Are you sure mothers are like that? Yes. So this was the truth about mothers, the toads. Still, it is best to be careful, and no one knows so quickly as a child when he should give in. "'Wendy, let us go home,' cried John and Michael together. "'Yes,' she said, clutching them. "'Not to-night,' asked the lost boys, bewildered. They knew in what they call their hearts that one can get on quite well without a mother, and that it is only the mothers who think you can't. "'At once,' Wendy replied resolutely, for the horrible thought had come to her. Perhaps mother is in half-mourning by this time. The dread made her forgetful of what must be Peter's feelings, and she said to him, rather sharply, 
Peter, will you make the necessary arrangements? If you wish it, he replied as coolly as if she had asked him to pass the nuts. Not so much as a sorry to lose you between them. If she did not mind the parting, he was going to show her, was Peter, that neither did he. But of course he cared very much, and he was so full of wrath against grown-ups who, as usual, were spoiling everything, that as soon as he got inside his tree he breathed intentionally quick short breaths at the rate of about five to a second. He did this because there is a saying in the Neverland that every time you breathe a grown-up dies, and Peter was killing them off vindictively as fast as possible. Then, having given the necessary instructions to the Redskins, he returned to the home, where an unworthy scene had been enacted in his absence. Panic-stricken at the thought of losing Wendy, the lost boys had advanced upon her threateningly. "'It will be worse than before she came,' they cried. "'We shan't let her go. Let's keep her prisoner. Aye, chain her up.' In her extremity an instinct told her to which of them to turn. "'Toodles,' she cried, "'I appeal to you.' Was it not strange? She appealed to Toodles, quite the silliest one. Grandly, however, did Toodles respond. For that one moment he dropped his silliness and spoke with dignity. "'I am just Toodles,' he said, "'and nobody minds me.' But the first one who does not behave to Wendy like an English gentleman, I will blood him severely. He drew back his hanger, and for that instant his son was at noon. The others held back uneasily. Then Peter returned, and they saw at once that they would get no support from him. He would keep no girl in Neverland against her will. Wendy, he said, striding up and down, I have asked the Redskins to guide you through the wood as flying tires you so. Thank you, Peter. Then, he continued in the short, sharp voice of one accustomed to be obeyed, Tinkerbell will take you across the sea. Wake her, Nibs. Nibs had to knock twice before he got an answer, though Tink had really been sitting up in bed listening for some time. Who are you? How dare you? Go away, she cried. You are to get up, Tink, Nibs called, and take Wendy on a journey. Of course, Tink had been delighted to hear that Wendy was going, but she was jolly well determined not to be her courier, and she said so in still more offensive language. Then she pretended to be asleep again. She says she won't, Nibs exclaimed, aghast at such insubordination whereupon Peter went sternly toward the young lady's chamber. "'Tink,' he rapped out, "'if you don't get up and dress at once, I will open the curtains, and then we shall all see you in your negligee.' This made her leap to the floor. "'Who said I wasn't getting up?' she cried. In the meantime the boys were gazing very forlornly at Wendy, now equipped with John and Michael for the journey. By this time they were dejected, not merely because they were about to lose her, but also because they felt that she was going off to something nice to which they had not been invited. 
Novelty was beckoning to them as usual. Crediting them with a nobler feeling, Wendy melted. Dear ones, she said, if you will all come with me, I feel almost sure I can get my father and mother to adopt you. The invitation was meant specially for Peter, but each of the boys was thinking exclusively of himself, and at once they jumped with joy. But won't they think us rather a handful? Nibs asked in the middle of his jump. Oh, no, said Wendy, rapidly thinking it out. It will only mean having a few beds in the drawing-room. They can be hidden behind the screens on first Thursdays. Peter, can we go? they all cried imploringly. They took it for granted that if they went he would go also, but really they scarcely cared. Thus children are ever ready when novelty knocks to desert their dearest ones. All right, Peter replied with a bitter smile, and immediately they rushed to get their things. And now, Peter, Wendy said, thinking she had put everything right, I am going to give you your medicine before you go. She loved to give them medicine, and undoubtedly gave them too much. Of course it was only water, but it was out of a bottle, and she always shook the bottle and counted the drops, which gave it a certain medicinal quality. On this occasion, however, she did not give Peter his draft, for just as she had prepared it, she saw a look on his face that made her heart sink. "'Get your things, Peter,' she cried, shaking. "'No,' he answered, pretending indifference. "'I am not going with you, Wendy.' "'Yes, Peter.' "'No.' To show that her departure would leave him unmoved, he skipped up and down the room, playing gaily on his heartless pipes. She had to run about after him, though it was rather undignified. "'To find your mother,' she coaxed. Now, if Peter had ever quite had a mother, he no longer missed her. He could do very well without one. He had thought them out and remembered only their bad points. "'No, no,' he told Wendy decisively. Perhaps she would say I was old, and I just want always to be a little boy and to have fun. But Peter, no. And so the others had to be told. Peter isn't coming. Peter not coming? They gazed blankly at him, their sticks over their backs and on each stick a bundle. Their first thought was that if Peter was not going he had probably changed his mind about letting them go. But he was far too proud for that. "'If you find your mothers,' he said darkly, "'I hope you will like them.' The awful cynicism of this made an uncomfortable impression, and most of them began to look rather doubtful. After all, their faces said, were they not noodles to want to go? "'Now then,' cried Peter, "'no fuss, no blubbering. Good-bye, Wendy.' and he held out his hand cheerily, quite as if they must really go now, for he had something important to do. She had to take his hand, and there was no indication that he would prefer a thimble. "'You will remember about changing your flannels, Peter,' she said, lingering over him. She was always so particular about their flannels. "'Yes.' "'And you will take your medicine?' "'Yes.' That seemed to be everything, 
and an awkward pause followed. Peter, however, was not the kind that breaks down before other people. "'Are you ready, Tinkerbell?' he called out. "'Aye, aye.' "'Then lead the way.' Tink darted up the nearest tree, but no one followed her. For it was at this moment that the pirates made their dreadful attack upon the redskins. Above, where all had been so still, the air was rent with shrieks and the clash of steel. Below, there was dead silence. Mouths opened and remained open. Wendy fell on her knees, but her arms were extended toward Peter. All arms were extended to him as if suddenly blown in his direction. They were beseeching him mutely not to desert them. As for Peter, he seized his sword, the same he thought he had slain Barbecue with, and the lust of battle was in his eye. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of Peter Pan by J. M. Barrie This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 the children are carried off. The pirate attack had been a complete surprise, a sure proof that the unscrupulous hook had conducted it improperly, for to surprise redskins fairly is beyond the wit of the white man. By all the unwritten laws of savage warfare, it is always the redskin who attacks, and with the wiliness of his race he does it just before the dawn at which time he knows the courage of the whites to be at their lowest ebb. The white men have, in the meantime, made a rude stockade on the summit of yonder undulating ground, at the foot of which a stream runs, for it is destruction to be too far from water. There they await the onslaught, the inexperienced ones clutching their revolvers and treading on twigs, but the old hands sleeping tranquilly until just before the dawn. Through the long black night the savage scouts wriggle snake-like among the grass without stirring a blade. The brushwood closes behind them as silently as sand into which a mole has dived. Not a sound is to be heard, save when they give vent to wonderful imitation of the lonely call of the coyote. The cry is answered by other braves, and some of them do it even better than the coyotes, who are not very good at it. So the chill hours wear on, and the long suspense is horribly trying to the pale face who has to live through it for the first time. But to the trained hand those ghastly calls and still ghastlier silences are but an intimation of how the night is marching. That this was the usual procedure was so well known to Hook that in disregarding it he cannot be excused on the plea of ignorance. The Piccaninnies, on their part, trusted implicitly to his honor, and their whole action of the night stands out in marked contrast to his. They left nothing undone that was consistent with the reputation of their tribe. With that alertness of the senses which is at once the marvel and despair of civilized peoples, they knew that the pirates were on the island from the moment one of them trod on a dry stick and in an incredibly short space of time the coyote cries began. 
every foot of ground between the spot where Hook had landed his forces and the home under the trees was stealthily examined by braves wearing their moccasins with the heels in front. They found only one hillock with a stream at its base, so that Hook had no choice. Here he must establish himself and wait for just before the dawn. Everything being thus mapped out with almost diabolical cunning, the main body of the redskins folded their blankets around them, and, in the phlegmatic manner that is to them, the pearl of manhood squatted above the children's home, awaiting the cold moment when they should deal pale death. Here, dreaming, though wide awake, of the exquisite torches to which they were to put him at the break of day, those confiding savages were found by the treacherous hook. From the accounts afterwards, supplied by such of the scouts as escaped the carnage, he does not seem to have paused at the rising ground, though it is certain that in that gray light he must have seen it. No thought of waiting to be attacked appears from first to last to have visited his subtle mind. He would not even hold off till the night was nearly spent. On he pounded with no policy but to fall to. What could the bewildered scouts do, masters as they were of every warlike artifice save this one, but trod helplessly after him, exposing themselves fatally to view, while they gave pathetic utterance to the coyote cry? Around the brave tiger-lily were a dozen of her stoutest warriors, and they suddenly saw the perfidious pirates bearing down upon them. Fell from their eyes then the film through which they had looked at victory. No more would they torture at the stake. For them the happy hunting-grounds was now. They knew it, but as their father's sons they acquitted themselves. Even then they had time to gather in a phalanx that would have been hard to break had they risen quickly. But this they were forbidden to do by the traditions of their race. It is written that the noble savage must never express surprise in the presence of the white. Thus, terrible as the sudden appearance of the pirates must have been to them, there remained stationary for a moment, not a muscle moving, as if the foe had come by invitation. Then, indeed, the tradition gallantly upheld, they seized their weapons, and the air was torn with the war-cry. But it was now too late. It is no part of ours to describe what was a massacre rather than a fight. Thus perished many of the flower of the Piccaninny tribe. Not all unavenged did they die, for with Lean Wolf fell Alf Mason to disturb the Spanish main no more. And among others who bit the dust were George Scowry, Charles Turley, and the Alsatian Fogarty. Turley fell to the tomahawk of the terrible panther, who ultimately cut away through the pirates with Tiger Lily and a small remnant of the tribe. To what extent Hook is to blame for his tactics on this occasion is for the historian to decide. Had he waited on the rising ground till the proper hour, he and his men would probably have been butchered, and in judging him it is only fair to take this into account. What he should perhaps have done was to acquaint his opponents that he proposed to follow a new method. On the other hand, this, as destroying the element of surprise, 
would have made his strategy of no avail, so that the whole question is beset with difficulties. One cannot at least withhold a reluctant admiration for the wit that had conceived so bold a scheme, and the fell genius with which it was carried out. What were his own feelings about himself at that triumphant moment? Fain would his dogs have known, as, breathing heavily and wiping their cutlasses, they gathered at a discreet distance from his hook and squinted through their ferret eyes at this extraordinary man. Elation must have been in his heart, but his face did not reflect it. Ever a dark and solitary enigma, he stood aloof from his followers in spirit as in substance. The night's work was not yet over for it was not the redskins he had come out to destroy. They were but the bees to be smoked, so that he could get at the honey. It was Pan he wanted, Pan and Wendy and their band, but chiefly Pan. Peter was such a small boy that one tends to wonder at the man's hatred of him. True, he had flung Hook's arm to the crocodile, but even this, and the increased insecurity of life to which it led, owing to the crocodile's pertinacity, hardly account for a vindictiveness so relentless and malignant. The truth is that there was something about Peter which goaded the pirate captain to frenzy. It was not his courage. It was not his engaging appearance. It was not—there is no beating about the bush, for we know quite well what it was, and have got to tell. It was Peter's cockiness. This had got on Hook's nerves. It made his iron claw twitch, and at night it disturbed him like an insect. While Peter lived, the tortured man felt that he was a lion in a cage into which a sparrow had come. The question now was how to get down the trees, or how to get his dogs down. He ran his greedy eyes over them, searching for the thinnest ones. They wriggled uncomfortably, for they knew he would not scruple to ram them down with poles. In the meantime, what of the boys? We have seen them at the first clang of the weapons, turned as it were into stone figures, open-mouthed, all appealing with outstretched arms to Peter, and we return to them as their mouths close, their arms fall to their sides. The pandemonium above has ceased almost as suddenly as it arose, passed like a fierce gust of wind, but they know that in the passing it has determined their fate. Which side had won? The pirates, listening avidly at the mouths of the trees, heard the question put by every boy, and the last they also heard Peter's answer. "'If the Redskins have won,' he said, "'they will beat the Tom-Tom.' It is always their sign of victory. Now Smee had found the tom-tom, and was at that moment sitting on it. "'You will never hear the tom-tom again,' he muttered, but inaudibly, of course, for strict silence had been enjoined. To his amazement Hook signed for him to beat the tom-tom, and slowly there came to Smee an understanding of the dreadful wickedness of the order. Never, probably, had this simple man admired Hook so much. 
Twice Smee beat upon the instrument, and then stopped to listen gleefully. The Tom-Tom, the miscreants heard Peter cry, an Indian victory. The doomed children answered with a cheer that was music to the black hearts above, and almost immediately they repeated their goodbyes to Peter. This puzzled the pirates, but all their other feelings were swallowed by a base delight that the enemy were about to come up the trees. They smirked at each other and rubbed their hands. Rapidly and silently Hook gave his orders, one man to each tree, and the others to arrange themselves in a line two yards apart. End of chapter 12《Chapter Thirteen of Peter Pan by J. M. Barry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen Do You Believe in Fairies? The more quickly this horror is disposed of, the better. The first to emerge from his tree was Curly. He rose out of it into the arms of Checo, who flung him to Smee, who flung him to Starkey, who flung him to Bill Jukes who flung him to Noodler, and so he was tossed from one to another till he fell at the feet of the black pirate. All the boys were plucked from their trees in this ruthless manner, and several of them were in the air at a time, like bales of goods flung from hand to hand. A different treatment was accorded to Wendy, who came last. With ironical politeness Hook raised his hat to her and offering her his arm, escorted her to the spot where the others were being gagged. He did it with such an air, and he was so frightfully distingué, that she was too fascinated to cry out. She was only a little girl. Perhaps it is telltale to divulge that for a moment Hook entranced her, and we tell on her only because her slip led to strange results. Had she haughtily unhanded him, and we should have loved to write of it of her, she would have been hurled through the air like the others, and then Hook would probably not have been present at the tying of the children, and had he not been at the tying he could not have discovered slightly secret, and without the secret he could not presently have made his foul attempt on Peter's life. They were tied to prevent their flying away, doubled up with their knees close to their ears and for the trussing of them the black pirate had cut a rope into nine equal pieces. All went well until Slightly's turn came, when he was found to be like those irritating parcels that use up all the string in going round and leave no tags with which to tie a knot. The pirates kicked him in their rage, just as you kick a parcel, though in fairness you should kick the string and strange to say it was Hook who told them to belay their violence. His lip was curled with malicious triumph. While his dogs were merely sweating because every time they tried to pack the unhappy lad tight in one part he bulged out in another. Hook's mastermind had gone far beneath slightly surface, probing not for effects but for causes and his exultation showed that he had found them. Slightly, white to the gills, knew that Hook had surprised his secret, which was this, that no boy so blown out could use a tree wherein an average man need stick. 
poor slightly, most wretched of all the children now, for he was in a panic about Peter, bitterly regretted what he had done. Madly addicted to the drinking of water when he was hot, he had swelled in consequence to his present girth, and instead of reducing himself to fit his tree, he had, unknown to the others, whittled his tree to make it fit him. Sufficient of this, Hook guessed, to persuade him that Peter at last lay at his mercy. But no word of the dark design that now formed in the subterranean caverns of his mind crossed his lips. He merely signed that the captives were to be conveyed to the ship, and that he would be alone. How to convey them? Hunched up in their ropes they might indeed be rolled downhill like barrels, but most of the way lay through a morass. Again Hook's genius surmounted difficulties. He indicated that the little house must be used as a conveyance. The children were flung into it, four stout pirates raised it on their shoulders, the others fell in behind, and, singing the hateful pirate chorus, the strange procession set off through the wood. I don't know whether any of the children were crying. If so, the singing drowned the sound, but as the little house disappeared in the forest, a brave though tiny jet of smoke issued from its chimney as if defying Hook. Hook saw it, and it did Peter a bad service. It dried up any trickle of pity for him that may have remained in the pirate's infuriated breast. The first thing he did on finding himself alone in the fast-falling night was to tiptoe to Slightly's tree and make sure that it provided him with a passage. Then for long he remained brooding, his hat of ill omen on the sward, so that any gentle breeze which had arisen might play refreshingly through his hair. Dark as were his thoughts, his blue eyes were as soft as the periwinkle. Intently he listened for any sound from the netherworld, but all was as silent below as above. The house under the ground seemed to be but one more empty tenement in the void. Was that boy asleep, or did he stand waiting at the foot of Slightly's tree with his dagger in his hand? There was no way of knowing save by going down. Hook let his cloak slip softly to the ground, and then, biting his lips till a lewd blood stood on them, he stepped into the tree. He was a brave man, but for a moment he had to stop there and wipe his brow, which was dripping like a candle. Then, silently, he let himself go into the unknown. He arrived unmolested at the foot of the shaft, and stood still again biting at his breath, which had almost left him. As his eyes became accustomed to the dim light, various objects in the home under the trees took shape. But the only one on which his greedy gaze rested, long sought for and found at last, was the great bed. On the bed lay Peter fast asleep. Unaware of the tragedy being enacted above, Peter had continued, for a little time after the children left, to play gaily on his pipes, no doubt rather a forlorn attempt to prove to himself that he did not care. Then he decided not to take his medicine, 
so as to grieve Wendy. Then he lay down on the bed outside the coverlet to vex her still more, for she had always tucked them inside it, because you never know that you might not grow chilly at the turn of the night. Then he nearly cried, but it struck him how indignant she would be if he laughed instead, so he laughed a haughty laugh and fell asleep in the middle of it. Sometimes, though not often, he had dreams, and they were more painful than the dreams of other boys. For hours he could not be separated from these dreams, though he wailed piteously in them. They had to do, I think, with the riddle of his existence. At such times it had been Wendy's custom to take him out of bed and sit with him on her lap, soothing him in dear ways of her own invention, and, when he grew calmer, to put him back to bed before he quite woke up, so that he should not know of the indignity to which she had subjected him. But on this occasion he had fallen at once into a dreamless sleep. One arm dropped over the edge of the bed, one leg was arched, and the unfinished part of his laugh was stranded on his mouth, which was open, showing the little pearls. Thus defenseless Hook found him. He stood silent at the foot of the tree, looking across the chamber at his enemy. Did no feeling of compassion disturb his somber breast? The man was not wholly evil. He loved flowers, I have been told, and sweet music, he was himself no mean performer on the harpsichord, and, let it be frankly admitted, the idyllic nature of the scene stirred him profoundly. Mastered by his better self, he would have returned reluctantly up the tree, but for one thing. What stayed him was Peter's impertinent appearance as he slept. The open mouth, the drooping arm, the arched knee, they were such a personification of cockiness as, taken together, will never again, one may hope, be presented to eyes so sensitive to their offensiveness. They steeled Hook's heart. If his rage had broken him into a hundred pieces, every one of them would have disregarded the incident and leapt at the sleeper. Though a light from the one lamp shone dimly on the bed, Hook stood in darkness himself, and at the first stealthy step forward he discovered an obstacle, the door to Slightly's tree. It did not entirely fill the aperture and he had been looking over it. Feeling for the catch, he found to his fury that it was low down, beyond his reach. To his disordered brain it seemed then that the irritating quality in Peter's face and figure visibly increased, and he rattled the door and flung himself against it. Was his enemy to escape him after all? But what was that? The red in his eye had caught sight of Peter's medicine standing on a ledge within easy reach. He fathomed what it was straight away, and immediately knew that the sleeper was in his power. Lest he should be taken alive, Hook always carried about his person a dreadful drug, blended by himself of all the death-dealing rings that had come into his possession. These he had boiled down into a yellow liquid quite unknown to science, which was probably the most virulent poison in existence. 
Five drops of this he now added to Peter's cup. His hand shook, but it was in exultation rather than in shame. As he did it, he avoided glancing at the sleeper, but not less pity should unnerve him merely to avoid spilling. Then one long gloating look he cast upon his victim, and turning, wormed his way with difficulty up the tree. As he emerged at the top, he looked the very spirit of evil breaking from its hole. Donning his hat at its most rakish angle, he wound his cloak around him, holding one end in front as if to conceal his person from the night, of which it was the blackest part, and muttering strangely to himself, stole away through the trees. Peter slept on. The light guttered and went out, leaving the tenement in darkness, but still he slept. It must have been not less than ten o'clock by the crocodile when he suddenly sat up in his bed, wakened by he knew not what. It was a soft, cautious tapping on the door of his tree. Soft and cautious, but in that stillness it was sinister. Peter felt for his dagger till his hand gripped it. Then he spoke. "'Who is that?' For long there was no answer. Then again the knock. "'Who are you?' No answer. He was thrilled, and he loved being thrilled. In two strides he reached the door. Unlike Slightly's door, it filled the aperture, so that he could not see beyond it, nor could the one knocking see him. "'I won't open unless you speak,' Peter cried. Then at last the visitor spoke in a lovely bell-like voice. "'Let me in, Peter.' It was Tink, and quickly he unbarred to her. She flew in excitedly, her face flushed and her dress stained with mud. "'What is it?' "'Oh, you could never guess!' she cried, offering him three guesses. "'Out with it!' he shouted. And in one ungrammatical sentence, as long as the ribbons that conjurers pull out of their mouths, she told of the capture of Wendy and the boys. Peter's heart bobbed up and down as he listened. Wendy, bound, and on the pirate ship, she who loved everything to be just so. "'I'll rescue her,' he cried, leaping at his weapons. As he leapt, he thought of something he could do to please her. He could take his medicine. His hand closed on the fatal draft. "'No!' shrieked Tinkerbell, who had heard Hook mutter about his deed as he sped through the forest. Why not? It is poisoned. Poisoned? Who could have poisoned it? Hook! Don't be silly. How could Hook have got down here? Alas, Tinkerbell could not explain this, for even she did not know the dark secret of Slightly's tree. Nevertheless, Hook's word had left no room for doubt. The cup was poisoned. Besides, said Peter, quite believing himself, I never fell asleep. He raised the cup. No time for words now, time for deeds. And with one of her lightning movements, Tink got between his lips and the draught and drained it to the dregs. Why, Tink, how dare you drink my medicine? But she did not answer. Already she was reeling in the air. What is the matter with you? cried Peter, suddenly afraid. It 
was poisoned, Peter, she told him softly, and now I am going to be dead. Oh, Tink, did you drink it to save me? Yes. But why, Tink? Her wings could scarcely carry her now, but in reply she alighted on his shoulder and gave his nose a loving bite. She whispered in his ear, You silly ass, and then, tottering to her chamber, lay down on the bed. His head almost filled the fourth wall of her little room as he knelt near her in distress. Every moment her light was growing fainter, and he knew that if it went out she would be no more. She liked his tears so much that she put out her beautiful finger and let them run over it. Her voice was so low that at first he could not make out what she said. Then he made it out. She was saying that she thought she could get well again if children believed in fairies. Peter flung out his arms. There were no children here, and it was nighttime, but he addressed all who might be dreaming of the Neverland, and who were therefore nearer to him than you think. Boys and girls in their nighties and naked papooses in their blankets hung from trees. "'Do you believe?' he cried. Tink sat up in bed almost briskly to listen to her fate. She fancied she heard answers in the affirmative, and then again she wasn't sure. "'What do you think?' she asked Peter. "'If you believe,' he shouted to them, "'clap your hands. Don't let Tink die.' Many clapped. Some didn't. A few beasts hissed. The clapping stopped suddenly, as if countless mothers had rushed to their nurseries to see what on earth was happening. But already Tink was saved. First her voice grew strong, then she popped out of bed, then she was flashing through the room more merry and impudent than ever. She never thought of thanking those who believed, but she would have liked to get at the ones who had hissed. And now to rescue Wendy! The moon was riding in a cloudy heaven when Peter rose from his tree, begirth with weapons and wearing little else, to set out upon his perilous quest. It was not such a night as he would have chosen. He had hoped to fly, keeping not far from the ground so that nothing unwanted should escape his eyes. But in that fitful light to have flown low would have meant trailing his shadow through the trees, thus disturbing birds and acquainting a watchful foe that he was astir. He regretted now that he had given the birds of the island such strange names that they are very wild and difficult to approach. There was no other course but to press forward in redskin fashion, at which happily he was an adept. But in what direction? For he could not be sure that the children had been taken to the ship. A light fall of snow had obliterated all footmarks and a deadly silence pervaded the island, as if for a space nature stood still in horror of the recent carnage. He had taught the children something of the forest lore that he had himself learned from Tiger Lily and Tinkerbell, and knew that in their dire hour they were not likely to forget it. Slightly, if he had an opportunity, would blaze the trees, for instance. Curly would drop seeds, and Wendy would leave her handkerchief at some important place. The morning was needed to search for such guidance, and he could not wait. 
the upper world had called him, but would give no help. The crocodile passed him, but not another living thing, not a sound, not a movement, and yet he knew well that sudden death might be at the next tree or stalking him from behind. He swore this terrible oath. Hook or me this time. Now he crawled forward like a snake, and again erect he darted across a space on which the moonlight played, one finger on his lip and his dagger at the ready. He was frightfully happy. End of chapter 13